The passage is also on the screens. Last week we learned about the conversion of the Pharisee, once known as Saul, later to become Paul, the greatest missionary and evangelist in the early church. Today we will read about um, two miraculous healings. This is the Word of God, Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints at Lydda, and he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when they arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or we die. Lord, that's our prayer this morning to see our own weakness, but to see that you are stronger, to be reminded and encouraged and built up that Jesus Christ has overcome all enemies and is even now exalted at the right hand of the Father in power in his resurrection body. And that hope of resurrection life is our hope as well. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a a kid growing up in Georgia, uh, most evenings my mom would cook a home-cooked meal, and it was always great. But if you're a parent, you know that there are those nights where you just don't have it in you to cook something from scratch, and so you you go to the freezer, uh, you grab the quick meal, and uh, or something like that. And for my parents, one such go-to meal was Velveeta, cheese macaroni. Does anyone here know Velveeta? Um, all right, looks like most, most of you do. It's been around for a long time. Well, um, growing up, Velveeta nights were always a treat, right? Um, it, it was like, along with TV dinners, there was just certain associations. Um, you know, it, was a per- it seemed like the perfect meal to eat while you were watching a movie. Well, fast forward to today. I don't think I've had Velveeta for about a decade, potentially longer. And... Um, Call me crazy, but now the thought of that silver package with the squishy cheese and sort of the congealed texture, I no longer find it appealing. In fact, I find it a little gross. 
And, um, you know, again, call me crazy, but my ideal dinner for a movie night these days is no longer Velveeta. And uh, if, if that is one of your comfort foods, just forgive me and don't hold it against me the rest of the sermon, okay? But for me, at least, that is an example of something that I once found tasty, but now as an adult, I long for more. I long for something that's more satisfying, something that's more enjoyable to eat. And uh, we all know kids. You know, kids have such a, a basic food palate. You could give kids chicken nuggets for a month straight, and they're still going strong on that. Um, some of you maybe have done that. Uh, and if you have, I don't want to know. But, um, but as adults, we, we long for something more. Veggie sticks for dinner just doesn't sound appetizing. We long for all the different flavors that God has created Um, Not just things that are really sugary or salty, but also things that are sour or spicy or bitter or umami, as I've read online, which is the taste of savory. And here in New Jersey, which is, it seems like it's kind of a cuisine paradise, right? We're, We're pretty spoiled with lots of good and creative foods. And our passage today is about two miraculous healings. One is the healing of a man who was a paralytic. So one is the healing of a disability. The other is a miraculous resuscitation of a person that was clinically dead and is brought back to life. And these miracles give us a taste of the resurrection life that we have in Christ. In and of themselves, they are are miraculous. They are wonderful. They are amazing. But they point beyond themselves to the resurrection life that we have in Christ, that we one day will experience to the full but even now can experience to a great degree. And the question that I have for all of us today, myself included, is are we content with a Velveeta spirituality? Are we sort of content just with the same old, same old, with the status quo in our spiritual lives? Or do we long for something more? Three points today. Present pain, resurrection life, and holy dissatisfaction or longing more. Present pain, resurrection life and longing for more. First of all, present pain. In our passage, we see uh, two people are healed. Aeneas and Tabitha, who's also known as Dorcas. I'm sure she preferred Tabitha. Um, And they are both, I'm just saying, and and they are both uh, suffering from living in a fallen world. Aeneas, we are told, has been bedridden for eight years. Uh, We don't know when he became paralyzed or how he became paralyzed, but whether it was by birth, whether by accident, whether by disease, he's a paralytic. Um, Tabitha is a beloved Christian in the community. The description to me, she sounds like a deaconess to me. Um, she is someone who uh, is known for her works of charity and love and working with the poor. And you see that where her clothing that she makes for others is presented um, in the passage by the other widows. And all of these things, whether it's disability, whether it's evil, whether it's violence, Um, whether, of course, it's death, which the Bible calls the final enemy. All of these things remind us that we live in a fallen world. And if I can go a step further than that, they remind us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for a better world. We long for a world where there is no poverty, where there is no war, where there is no terrorism, where there is no violence, where there is no domestic abuse or sexual abuse or, of course, crime or disease and death. And our longing speaks of a good thing. If we're thirsty, the natural, uh, if the longing for thirst says that t- 
tells us that we should drink something. If you're hungry, that longing says you need to eat something. If you're tired, that longing says you need to get sleep. And if you long for a better world, which I think everyone does on some level, that speaks to the fact that we were created for a better world. We were created to live in a better world than the world as we see it. And it's easy to sort of dismiss that desire and to sort of say, well, that's kind of childish. We should just man up and accept the world as it is. But I don't think so. You know, there's sort of a movement in young adult literature today. It's um, epitomized in, in the book, The Hunger Games. Hopefully most of you have heard of that. It's become a movie sensation as well. But there's this word dystopia. Have you heard of it? Um, I had never heard of the word dystopia until a couple years ago. I, I knew what the word utopia meant, but I didn't know what the word dystopia meant. And the word means an imagined place or state in which everything is unpleasant or bad. And that seems to be the, the thing now is to set your book in a world where everything's terrible. And um, why is that? I, th- I think, I don't know for sure, but I think it speaks to maybe a little bit of of cynicism or pessimism in our society today, which says the world is awful and we should just accept it and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and the idea seems to be, you know, happily ever after is for, is for kids. And, you know, we're, we're more mature than that. But our longing for a better world is not a bad thing. It's not an immature thing. I would say it's something given to us by God in which we hope for a better world. And, and of course, by His grace, we work toward a better world. Listen to the Catholic theologian G.K. Chesterton describe um, the Christian, the biblical approach to the world. Chesterton says this, The fall is a view of life. It's not the only enlightening, but the only encouraging view of life. And I say, wait a second, how is the fall an encouraging view of life? Stay with him. It holds, as against all other views of life, that we have misused a good world and not merely been entrapped in a bad one. That's the dystopian approach to life. We're just trapped in a bad world. Every other creed except that one is some form of surrender to fate. Happiness is not only a hope, but it also, in some strange manner, a memory. Isn't that a beautiful description? And we are all kings in exile. Do you hear what Chesterton is saying? He's saying this, we live in a broken world. Yeah, we all get that. But our desire for a better world, it's not some childish dream. It is in some way, it's a memory. Like we know we were created for a better world. We don't necessarily know how to make it a better world. We try with our feeble efforts. We know we ourselves were meant for a better existence. An existence that's not ruled by anger and greed and, and, and lust and anxiety and fear. But we don't always know how to achieve it. We are all kings in exile. We were made for a better world, but we live in a fallen world. That's present pain. But we also see in this passage resurrection power. Look at Peter's response to the condition of Aeneas and Tabitha. He doesn't say to Aeneas, hey, um, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing you can do. You might as well just get out of life what you can. He also doesn't go with the power of positive thinking, Abraham Maslow. He doesn't say, hey, Aeneas, you can do it. Let's work on your resume. Let's turn this um, disability into a strength. Rather, he directs our gaze to Jesus, to the risen Christ. Now, most scholars think that Aeneas and Tabitha were both believers. Peter doesn't have to explain who Jesus is to Aeneas. And, of course, Tabitha is described as a believer. 
And so rather he's able to say to them, they already know who Jesus is, so he's able to say to Aeneas, in the power of Jesus' name, get up and walk. And he's able to say to Tabitha, Tabitha, get up. And if you want to see a remarkable parallel between the work uh, that Peter does and what Jesus does, go read Mark 5. There's, a, there's sort of a parallel account. Um, Peter has seen this before. He's seen Jesus do it. And now in the power of Jesus' name, he's doing the same thing. But what is remarkable here is the word choice that Peter uses. The verb that Peter uses uh, for get up, you can see it on your screen, it can mean to get up or it can mean to cause to rise up or to be resurrected, anistemi. It's the same word that's used in Romans 14.9 or, or a variation of that word. Romans 14.9 says, For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. Same word used. So that we might so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What's the significance? Well, of course, in a literal way, Peter is healing Aeneas and Tabitha. But these miracles are pointing to a deeper reality, the deeper reality of resurrection life. Peter's saying, in a sense, be resurrected. Experience the fullness of resurrection life that you have in Jesus' name, of which this physical healing is just a taste of of that which awaits you in glory. If you study the letters of Paul, you'll notice an interesting thing. Paul talks about the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He speaks of them as though we were there. It's very interesting. He doesn't just describe them as these past events which happened thousands of years ago, but rather he describes them like we were there. There's an old African-American spiritual, which if you don't know the African-American spirituals, um, you, you should learn them. One of my favorite historians calls them one of the greatest contributions America's ever made to the Christian faith because they, were, they came out of pain and suffering. Um, but there's an old African-American spiritual. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? There's another line that says, were you there when Christ rose up from the dead? And the answer to that question is, well, in a sense, we were there. In terms of Jesus' cross, there's a sense in which we were the ones putting him on the cross. But there's even, because, because of our sin, that's why he went to the cross. But there's an even deeper sense in which, as those who believe in Jesus and are saved through the work of Jesus, we were crucified with Christ. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith and the son who loved us and gave himself for me. Listen to what Paul says, a few verses to illustrate this point. Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with Christ. He raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 6. Colossians 3, 1, since then you have been raised. Not you will be raised. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above. And then one more from Romans chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has, who has died has been set free from sin. What is Paul saying? These realities of salvation, they're not all just future, but rather they have everything to do with the present your resurrection life, my resurrection life starts now. 
Now, of course, the fullness of that, our resurrection bodies themselves, will come to us only in glory. And there are many things in this life we will never fully experience. Nonetheless, resurrection life is not simply a future promise, but it is also a present reality. Paul is saying, experience those realities now by faith in Christ. One final point, holy dissatisfaction, as we think about the fact that these are realities that matter for our present. So often in life, and as I was thinking about how to describe this as a Christian, this is the phrase God gave me, holy dissatisfaction. So often in life, all of us, myself included, we're dissatisfied, aren't we? We're dissatisfied with our job. We wish we had a better job, easier job, more fulfilling job. We're dissatisfied with, this, with the size of our home, the condition of our home, the town we live in. We're dissatisfied with the amount of money in our bank account or our retirement account. We're dissatisfied with how our kids are doing in school or athletics. Um, we can be dissatisfied with where we are in our career path. We think, I could be so much further along. It's frustrating to see people above me who don't deserve to be above me. And, you know, we can be frustrated with our physical appearance. You know, why don't I have that four-pack or that six-pack or whatever the number of pack you're working on? Um, You know, how come I don't have that? I'm working out. I'm going to the gym. We can be dissatisfied with a lot of things. And some of those dissatisfactions aren't bad. It's not bad to want to have a college fund for your kids or to want to work hard, do well at your job. Those aren't bad things. But the question is, are we more dissatisfied with that then we are dissatisfied with our walk in holiness and our growth in holiness. Are we more dissatisfied with those things than how our prayer life is doing and how our passion uh, for the lost is and those that we see that don't know Christ? You know what God wants for us? Um, he, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. He says, don't worry about those things. Be content with those things. What I want you to do is be dissatisfied, have a holy dissatisfaction with our progress in holiness have a holy dissatisfaction with our evangelistic zeal for the lost and our, and our desire to give mercy to the poor. Have, be dissatisfied with how hungry we are for God's word and how much we pray and how much we see our need of prayer. Be dissatisfied with even how much we appreciate the sacraments and how much we desire the sacraments to minister grace in our lives. Be dissatisfied with how well we know our church family. In other words, saying, I want to know people better. I want to have people in my life that when the crisis hits... I've got somebody to call who I can be honest with and share my struggles, somebody who will, who will be there for me. That's the kind of holy dissatisfaction that God wants for us. It's amazing. Um, if you think about the Apostle Paul, who we, who we looked at last week, even Paul, the Apostle, who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, the man who became the greatest missionary and evangelist the early church or perhaps the world has ever seen, a man who knew Christ so well and loved his word and and had such a rich prayer life, Paul had this holy dissatisfaction in terms of wanting more. He wanted more of Jesus in this life. Listen to Paul's own words in Philippians 3. He says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now listen to this. Not that I have already obtained it 
obtained all this or already have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Paul. He's saying, Lord, I want more resurrection life. I want to experience more of you, God, not so that you'll love me more or so that um, I'll earn salvation somehow, but rather because I know the joy of walking with you, Jesus, and I want more of it. I want to experience more victory now over sin and depression and struggles and loneliness and all of these things. I want to experience more of it. What does resurrection life, we're going to end with this, what does more resurrection look like, life look like for us now? Well, it means more contentment with our circumstances and more hunger for the things of God. It means not being comfortable with our spiritual maturity, but a hunger to grow deeper. Saying, Lord, however well I know your word, however good my prayer life is right now, I want it to be deeper. I want to know your word more. I want to feed on your word. I want to have a hunger for your word. I want your word to fill my mind when I'm stressed or when I'm happy or when I'm unsure or when I'm fearful or when I'm angry. I want your word to be, to fill me so that your word would flow out of my mouth. Lord, I want my prayer life to be better. I, I, want, I don't want my first reaction when crisis comes to just, okay, how do I manage this? What do I do? How do I figure this out? but rather to go to God and to say, you hold the whole world in, my, in your hands, you hold my life in your hands, you know every hair on my head. I submit this to you. Help me to learn from this. Lord, I want to go deeper in my faith. We've got a lot of ways you can go deeper in your faith here at the church. One of them is certainly to be part of a growth group, to have, a, have people that know you, that walk alongside you in life. There's many other ways. We would love for you to seek those ways out, but to not be comfortable with your spiritual maturity, but a desire to go deeper. It also, it, this more resurrection life looks like it's not an absence of struggle. It's not saying, God, please just take me out of difficult situations in life because we all know once you've lived long enough, that's not going to happen. But rather, Lord, give me more peace in the midst of struggle. Lord, it's not so much that I want you to take away the storms. We don't ask for difficulties, of course, but we know they're going to come. And so it's, Lord... I'm not saying deliver me from any kind of difficult situation. I live in a fallen world. Brokenness is going to come. But rather, give me a newfound peace so that I can weather that storm by your grace. That I'll be strengthened. That I, that I won't fall apart. And, and one way you're not going to fall apart is by having a family of God who knows you and comes alongside you because you, you're never meant to weather that storm alone. Lord, give me not an absence of struggle, but a newfound peace in the midst of struggle. Not an absence of temptation. Temptation certainly not going anywhere, but a newfound disgust for that which God hates. Lord, help sin to be like motor oil in my mouth. Okay, not just Velveeta. That's, cut, that's putting the bar too low. Lord, help sin to be like motor oil in my mouth. I want it to be disgusting before you and we know that when temptation comes it there is a sometimes there's even a physical desire to you almost taste that temptation you want that but it's like it's like any person who's addicted to something knows who quits it the longer you say no the less tempting it becomes 
the more that you say no to sin by the power of God, by His grace, the less tempting that sin will become. And the more, through the power of the Spirit, you will be able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Not the absence of temptation, but a newfound disgust for that which God hates. And finally, not indifference toward the lost, but a newfound compassion and concern for those who have not been forgiven and liberated by Christ's love. Lord, give me a, give me a hunger for my coworker or my neighbor or my family member who is looking for all the all the looking for answers in all the wrong places. Their life is falling apart. I can see their life falling apart. I can see their marriage hurting. I can see their kids hurting. And they're looking for all these different things. And I, I know they're not going to find it there because I've looked myself there and they're not going to find it there. Lord, give me a burden. Give me a willingness to be inconvenienced by the hurting, the frustrating, the annoying, the, the person that doesn't know Jesus. But we do, not because we've done anything, but we've been saved by his amazing grace. Lord, give me a burden, not indifference toward the lost, but a newfound compassion and concern for those who have yet to be forgiven and liberated by Christ's love. One last point. Some of the most remarkable words that Jesus said while he was on earth are the words he says in John 16, 7. In John 16, 7, Jesus says this. He says, Very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why is this so remarkable? Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's saying, it's actually going to be good for you if I ascend to the right hand of the Father. And the reason why is simple. Because he promises, he says, I'm going to send a helper, an advocate, a counselor. We call the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is going to fill you when you receive Christ by faith. You will have the spirit as uh, we see when the spirit is poured out at Pentecost. And you will have the spirit. And the spirit is the down payment or one of the down payments of the resurrection life that we have in Christ. And it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we exercise faith in God and as we pursue holiness and as we do what Paul says, we strain toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus It's through the Spirit that we experience more resurrection life. And so the New Testament speaks of us quenching the Spirit, but it also speaks of us being filled with the Spirit. And may our prayer be, friends, that we as followers of Jesus would be filled with that Spirit so that we might experience more resurrection life now. If you don't know that resurrection life, we would love to tell you more about Christ and, and how you can be born again from on high and how you can taste this resurrection life that we speak of. But for all of us here, may we see the resurrection life is not just future promise. It certainly is that, and the future is more glorious than we will ever know, but it's present reality as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for resurrection life. We thank you for a story of amazing healing, and we thank you most of all for the healing that you accomplished on the cross, your death, your resurrection, that we might know God. Help us to experience that resurrection life. Even now, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.